1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll begin in verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And you can be seated. So by now, this is uh, familiar territory uh, with most of us. Uh, and I, I just want to remind us this morning as we were really drilling down deeply into these spiritual gifts, understanding spiritual gifts properly is not just sort of a, an interesting side note on the Christian life, it really is central to understanding who God is because who gives the spiritual gifts? It's God, the Holy Spirit. This is, this is really his work in believers um, in a very intimate way to further the gospel and encourage the church until the Lord Jesus comes back. And so really only when we understand the spiritual gifts correctly will we understand the Holy Spirit Correctly, And as much as we misunderstand them, we're going to misunderstand the Holy Spirit. And I think it's safe to say that the Holy Spirit is probably the least understood person of the Trinity. And one of the ways that he is misunderstood is through these spiritual gifts. And so I think as we study through this, understand that we're not just out off in la-la land and, and trying, to, trying to discern what these things are, but we're really trying to understand who God is, specifically God the Holy Spirit, as he works within the church to bring glory to Jesus Christ and ultimately glory to the Father. I know this has been a little bit slower than usual as we've gone through this section. We're not even going to finish today. We're going to bleed over into next week too. But I hope this has been helpful for you guys as we unpack these gifts a little bit to understand really what they are and how they operate and how God has used them for his glory in the church. I don't know how you guys have looked at spiritual gifts. Oftentimes, uh, in the past, I looked at the spiritual gifts as, as sort of like going to the buffet, right? Going to like Golden Corral. And I'm like, yeah, I like that one. And I like that one. I'll pass on that one. And I'm not even going near that table over there. Like, that's just kind of crazy. Um, which is a problem because it's a problem in our understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and what he has given to the church and why he's given it uh, to the church. We don't get to pick and choose what God puts before us. Um, this is by his own sovereign will. We see that in verse 11. All of these are empowered by the one and the same spirit who apportions each one individually as he wills. So we don't get to decide this. It's the Holy Spirit who gets to decide who gets what gifts or who does not get what gifts. Um, which is, if you think about it, if you step back and think about it, it's actually pretty cool. It's God who has decided what you personally need and equips you to minister to the body of Christ. But also taken collectively as a whole, it's the Holy Spirit who has decided the mixture of the gifts within our congregation. He gives us exactly what we need, the exact amount of teachers and people with faith and people with mercy, no more 
no less. We might like different gifts. Maybe we'd like other people to have different gifts, but really the Holy Spirit determines all of this for our good and for his glory, for the upbuilding of the church. We're going to spend our time uh, divided sort of equally between the next two gifts in verse 10. Uh, the first one we're going to spend some time on is distinguishing of spirits. And then we're going to talk about speaking in tongues. We're only going to just get a, a basic biblical understanding of what speaking in tongues is today. I just want you to have a, a, a basis of what the Bible says. And then next week, we'll, we'll dive into it a little bit more um, and, and also kind of include some, some contemporary issues and contemporary concerns with uh, speaking in tongues, interpretation, that sort of thing. So, um, so, so let's begin. We're going to start our look at distinguishing of spirits. You see that in verse 10. Uh, he, he, uh, the Apostle Paul continues on with his list. He says, to another, the working of miracles. We saw that. I think that's exorcism, the casting out of demons. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. And depending upon your translation, you have different things. Um, this gift is another gift, like we saw uh, several weeks ago, like words of wisdom or words of knowledge that we really wish we had a little bit more information about. We, we don't know a whole lot about that. Um, like those two gifts, uh, this is only explicitly mentioned here, and, and there isn't much description beyond the phrase that, that puts itself together. The good news is I think we have a little bit more information, a couple more puzzle pieces to put the whole picture together of what this gift is. Let me just start out for a few minutes by saying what I don't think this gift is, because I think that's just as important. Um, I do not believe that this is the gift of simply being discerning or having discernment. I don't think that that's what this is. Discernment is the ability to tell the difference between truth and error. That, that's what it is. Or, or light and darkness. Um, righteousness or ungodliness. I don't think that that is the gift that he has in mind here. And part of the reason that I don't think that that's the gift is because all Christians are called to be discerning. And all Christians are called to be growing in their discernment. If you are a Christian, you should be growing in your ability to tell the difference between truth and error. This should be a, a constant theme in your life that you are growing in. As you understand the word of God more and more, you can distinguish between maybe what Mormonism teaches and what the Bible teaches or um, what some other cult teaches and what the Bible teaches. Or maybe we could even say modern American Christian religion just vaguely and what the Bible teaches because there are some big differences there as well. And as a Christian, you should be growing in your ability not just to tell the difference between doctrinal issues, but also what is right and wrong, moral issues. As we live in a morally complicated society, uh, you should be able to slowly grow in your discernment about what is right and wrong in the Christian life. All believers should be growing in this. In fact, listen to what the author of Hebrews says. Uh, the author of Hebrews, if you've read Hebrews recently, he's talking about the connection between Jesus and Melchizedek. And, and it, as he starts explaining, it's almost like he gets frustrated and he takes a pause and he kind of chastises the Hebrews just a little bit. And, and here's what he says in chapter 5. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. He's trying to make this connection between Jesus and Melchizedek. And he says, and then he pauses and he says this about this. We have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Ouch. This is what he says to believers through the Holy Spirit. 
right? God is saying this through him. He says, you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. He says, you need the ABCs all over again. That's what you, that's what you need. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So he's frustrated that these Christians have not matured as they should. There's this, there's this, this trajectory of maturity that all Christians should have. And he said, you guys should be teachers by now. You guys should be teaching the basic elements of Christianity, and instead you need milk all over again. Now, if you're new in the faith, milk is good. You need simple truths. We got this little baby at home and in the diet, like all the time. It's just milk, and that's good. He's growing like a wheat. That's awesome. But imagine if five or seven years from now, his whole diet was still just milk. We'd be concerned, wouldn't we? That would be a problem. He's not grown. He's not matured. There, there could be something drastically wrong with him. The reality is that many Christians are in the faith for 5, 10, 20 years, and they don't ever seem to mature in the faith. They don't ever seem to grow in their ability to discern truth from error. They don't seem to be able to discern the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness when maybe a, a difficult moral dilemma is placed before them. They struggle to work through very basic moral questions. They struggle to, to understand very basic doctrinal questions. If, you, if you've been in the faith five or seven years and you still don't have some basic categories for the Trinity, you're on milk. You should be able to explain that, even to a young child. One God, three persons, eternally existing, all glorious. Just, just some simple categories. But there are many people who, they just never advance in their biblical understanding. And I have to be really honest, that's scary because if someone never advances in their biblical understanding, they never advance in their maturity, they never advance in their ability to distinguish truth from error, you kind of have to wonder if they're even in the faith. If, if they can't understand just very basic things. Paul says his prayer for the Philippians is that their love would abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment. Isn't that interesting? He prays that their love would grow, but he prays that it would grow in a very specific way, in knowledge and discernment. Love is not just love. There's a biblically informed love, and we grow in our love in as much as we gain knowledge about the truth of the word of God, and we are able to discern the truth of the word of God from error and righteousness from unrighteousness. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul says that we are called to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Can I tell you something? It's not always easy to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Not everything that's put before us is just a simple black or white issue. Sometimes it's hard to know, well, do I do this thing in life or do I do this thing in life? How do I judge different situations? The situations in our lives are complex and we need to carefully work through what is pleasing to God. But we are all called to do this. Every Christian is called to do this. Every Christian is called to discernment. And you say, why, why do you bring this up, Jason? Because there are some who believe that the gift that Paul is talking about here is just simply being discerning. If that's the case, though, then you've got a whole bunch of Christians who are just let off the hook and they go, oh, well, I don't need to discern truth from error. 
I don't need to discern right from wrong because that's just not my gift. I don't need to grow in that. I don't need to exercise that. And actually what happens is you get into this like downward cycle of people who think they're let off the hook by by not being discerning and so they don't pursue any sort of discernment and it, it just lets in error and compromise in their faith. All Christians are called to be discerning. This is not just a gift for just a few people. If you think about it, biblical discernment is sort of the filtering system in the church. That's really what it is. It filters out error. It filters out sinfulness. And all of us grow in that. So if it's not just discernment in general, what is Paul talking about here? Let me just give you, uh, I'll just tip my hand and tell you what I think he's saying. This, the, the, at least in the ESV, it is called distinguish, the ability to distinguish between spirits. And here's, here's the bottom line, I think, is it's the ability to determine the spiritual source of prophecies. The ability to determine the spiritual source of prophecies. We don't know for this for 100%. Um, this is not a hill that I would necessarily die on. But I think when we put some pieces together, it seems as though what Paul is describing here is sort of a companion gift to prophecy. So we saw prophecy is this revelation from God whereby he encourages the church. It's not always telling the future. It's not always some sort of word from the Lord. Sometimes it's just somebody who's encouraging. Sometimes it's somebody who is preaching um, Jesus. But this seems to be somebody who is gifted when somebody stands up to prophesy. This person over here with the ability to distinguish spirits can go, uh, that is from the Lord or no, that isn't from the Lord. They have this, they have this um, a special gift to understand what's motivating this prophecy. Remember, last time we were, we were in 1 Corinthians 12, we noted that prophecies are often weird and unusual. Really weird. In fact, we saw where um, the church in Thessalonica was despising prophecies. They were hating prophecies. Why would you hate something that you knew was from God? Especially if it was legitimate. Well, because sometimes they're unusual. We saw that even some of the biblical prophecies are very unusual. But we're not to hate them. We're not to despise them. Why would we need that command? Um, because sometimes people do. Well, when you have a weird prophecy, how do you know if it's from God or not? How do you know it, if it's actually from Jesus and it's true? Well, one way, and we, we saw this last time, to know for sure is to measure it against the word of God. We all have this ability. This is discernment in general is what somebody says in line with the scripture. Maybe it is, maybe it's not, but we can, we can discern that. Um, but because of the nature of prophecy, even when we do that, it seems like we don't always know right away whether it's from the Lord or whether it might be from Satan. And so I think that's what this gift is. It's the ability to instantly determine the true source of prophecy. So the phrase here is the ability to distinguish of spirits. And I think that word spirits is the word that we should key in on. What we have to understand is that all around us is this unseen spiritual world. We talk about this and I think we sort of know it vaguely, that sort of thing. But it is all around us. There are good spirits and there are bad spirits. The Holy Spirit, obviously good, animates the life of every believer. But there are other spirits, demonic spirits, that animate unbelievers. And maybe even people who claim to be believers are in the church and would stand up and say they have some sort of message from the Lord, but they really don't. 
they're not actually believers, and maybe they give a prophecy, and, and maybe it's vague enough where people don't know. And so how would you know? Well, God would give this companion gift to filter that out. And you say, well, Jason, where do we even see this? We see it in a few places. Turn back to Matthew chapter 7 for a minute. Matthew chapter 7. This is that scary portion of Scripture where Jesus basically says, not everybody who cries out to him on Judgment Day, Lord, Lord, is getting in. You remember that? That's a warning. Lord, Lord. And then he says, well, I never knew you. But look at what's going on here. Look at what the guy says to Jesus as he's doing that. So Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, that's earnest. Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Listen to this. On that day, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not what? Prophesy. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So let me just say, the, the reason that Jesus says, I never knew you, is because their, their heart was never repentant. They never turned to him. And in fact, their entire lives were dedicated to lawlessness. They never truly repented. They loved darkness rather than light. They may have said Lord to Jesus and called him Lord and said they believed in the Lordship of Christ, but their hearts were far from him. But, but notice what they point to as evidence, right? They're surprised on the day of judgment. They're surprised. But they point to three things. They said, do we not prophesy? Do we not cast out demons and do many mighty works? They all point to these works as as like proof that they should be entering into the kingdom on the last day. And it seems like these works would have been amazing. They, They are surprised that these works were not animated by Jesus, but were animated by someone else because they're pointing to them. Didn't we prophesy in your name? Weren't we doing work for you? And these are all fantastic things, you guys. This isn't like vacuuming. This isn't like like sweeping or something. These are all things that would be demonstrably miraculous. Prophecy, a revelation from God, casting out demons. That has to be done by supernatural power and many mighty works, probably some sort of miraculous things, healings of various kinds. And here's what what we need to understand. They did these things, and and everybody who saw them, including themselves, would probably have been like, oh, so-and-so is doing the work of the Lord here because he's casting out demons. He's prophesying. It seems like on the surface these things would have been legitimate. Otherwise, they would not have pointed to them as evidence for Jesus to let them in. Does that make sense? But they're all false. They're all phony. Where did this power come from? Well, it didn't come from Jesus because he says, I never knew you. Never once ever did I know you. Never once ever did I empower this in you. Well, now where's that kind of power come from? It's got to come from Satan and demons. And we know from other places in the Bible that, that Satan and demons power some pretty crazy stuff. 
So these guys were prophesying in a way that the church and even themselves would have thought would have been straight from Jesus wasn't from Jesus. All that to say, when we relate that back to 1 Corinthians 12, it seems like there are prophecies that maybe just on the surface seem okay. We don't know. Maybe we need to give it time. There's no direct contradiction between what the person is saying and what the Bible says. Maybe we need to give it time. And it seems like God has given some people a filtering mechanism to go, no, that is not from the Lord. Or yes, that is from the Lord. Not everybody gets this gift. Some people do. So unbelievers can prophesy. You remember there was the uh, the the girl in uh, Philippi, Acts chapter sixteen. She had a spirit of divination, and somehow she could she could divine the future. That's crazy. Actually, in the Greek, it says it was a snake demon. Is really what it says. That's weird. So this is out there. Turn over to First John chapter four. We see these two. We see these two concepts put together again. Almost the same language. This is going to be a little bit more broad, but but again, the same language. And there is a call to be discerning with spirits, to have discernment. I think this is a little bit more broad than the, the specific gift that Paul is talking about. But I think it's pretty amazing that these that these words are kind of put together. So first John chapter four. The Apostle John, excuse me, the Apostle John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John says, test the spirits. And what he means is test what people say. Don't just take it for granted that somebody in the church, maybe somebody you know for a long time, even seems to be a mature person, stands up and says something. Don't just take it at face value. You test it with the word of God. This is discernment in general. But again, there's this testing of spirits because there are spirits, both good and bad, that animate what goes on all around us. That sounds weird and crazy, but this is what the Bible says is true. And so we need to test. And I don't think it's a coincidence that discernment and prophecy are put together here. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Not all prophecies are from God. They're just not. There's always been a need for prophecies to be sifted. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 13. You can just jot this down. I've always thought this was fascinating. It says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, sounds legitimate, sign or a wonder, and the sign or a wonder that he tells you comes to pass, so it's, it's, it's a genuine sign or wonder, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams 
For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. That's Old Testament. That's all the way early in the Bible. We've always been commanded to discern whether prophecies are true or not. And it seems as though in the New Covenant, God has given this amazing gift to instantly discern, at least to some people, to instantly discern whether a prophecy is coming from God or someone else. Now, look at one more place with me in 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So here's where I think we actually have this gift in practice. This is, so, so 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is, is Paul working through all of the spiritual gifts. And here I think we actually have this in practice. He doesn't call it distinguishing between spirits, but I think that's exactly what's going on. Uh, it's an interesting section. Let me sketch out what I think we see here, and then we'll read it and put some pieces together. So in the Corinthian church, and this is what Paul commands for all churches. If you've got people who can speak in tongues and people can interpret tongues, and if you have prophecy, and I would say people who distinguish between spirits, what, what would happen is you'd have someone could speak in tongues. They would stand up and they would speak in their language and they'd sit down and someone would have to stand up and do what? Do you remember? Interpret. And you could do this, but two or three at the most, and they have to take turns, okay? Then they're done. That'd be an interesting thing to put in the order of service. And then we got prophets, and the prophets can stand up, two or three at the most, but they sit down, and then people judge their prophecy. Now, there's an interesting thing. We read it a few weeks ago, that women are to be silent in the church. You remember that? I think what he's saying is women don't have the ability to stand up and judge the prophecies in the church because that would be exercising authority in the church over these people. And I'll unpack that a little more. But let's read it together and sort of put this gift together. So look, chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, verses 26 through 40. Um, No. Yes. 26 through 40. So Paul says, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. verse 30, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. They're submissive to the prophets for God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, 
but all things should be done decently and in order. So again, when the church is gathered, two or three prophets can speak. That's in verse 29. And then verse 31 says, the purpose of prophecy is to be an encouragement. That's the whole point. It's not to be weird or crazy just for its own, although it can be that, but it's to be an encouragement. God works in people with this gift to encourage the church. But those who prophesy are to be evaluated. You don't just get to stand up and say, well, I got a revelation for the Lord and here you go. No, there's a group of people who go, okay, well, now thank you for that information. Now we're going to judge you. So you need to really know that you have the gift of prophecy if you're going to stand up and then people are going to judge you in the middle of church while all of this is going on. So just because they say they have the gift doesn't mean that they are above being held accountable. And, and just by the way, there are a lot of people who say that they have the gift of prophecy and then they'll just come and they'll say, well, God told me or the Lord told me this. Have you ever heard people say that? That's very dangerous because even on this account, we should never say that. We don't know unless it's evaluated. We need to be very careful with what we say um, unless you've got a chapter and verse and the Lord did tell you. But all on your own, a revelation, we, we don't know unless it's been evaluated. There is humility in knowing that we could be wrong. And then, of course, as I mentioned, in the middle of all this discussion, there's this weird pause where women are, women are to be silent in the church. So he's talking about prophecy, and the women need to be silent. And then he comes back and he talks about prophecy again. You're like, that is a weird side note. Like, why would he go on that tangent in the middle of this thing? I don't think it's a tangent. I don't think it's a tangent at all. Paul says clearly in chapter 11 that women can pray, they can use their words, and that women can prophesy in church. You remember that from chapter 11? So he says that they can do this. Why then would he say here, no, they need to be silent. They can't say anything. Because the context is judging these prophecies. That's the context. That's exactly what he's talking about. So I don't think it's a blanket prohibition against women saying anything in church. So why is this here? Um, I think it's here, and most scholars think it's here, because when someone evaluates prophecy, it is a role of authority. You are judging them. You are saying, no, this is right, or no, this is wrong, and this would be in the congregation where all the church is gathered. Verse 32, and I tried to point this out a little bit, but if you look at verse 32, he says, and the spirits of the prophets, those who would stand up and speak a prophecy, are subject, they're in submission to the prophets. These other people, these other prophets who would judge them, right? So there's submission going on within the church. Well, we know from 1 Timothy 2.12, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Not in the church. And so this would be inappropriate for them to do in the church. Maybe outside the church, if there was something going on, they could say something. Here... It seems like if you stand up and give a prophecy, a couple of people in the church um, could stand up and go, and they have the gift of distinguishing spirits, they could go, uh, that's not from the Lord. Sorry, you need to sit back down. That's just not from God. And that would be an act of authority based on the spirit. It seems like in the church, that role is reserved for men. So all of this, I don't think is a tangent or a weird off thing. I think it's actually Paul saying, look, prophecies do need to be evaluated, and especially when the church is gathered together, but they're not evaluated by women because that would be a role of authority in the church. 
And since there's an issue of submission and authority, women are to be silent. If they have questions about what the prophet said, they can ask their husbands about it later. So I don't think this is a blanket prohibition on women speaking in the church. I think it's a a prohibition against them authoritatively evaluating prophecies in the church. It's not a random side note. Like I said, he starts in verses 26 through 33 talking about prophecy, and he goes to women, and he comes back to prophecy, and I think it all fits together. And then in verse is 36 through 40, he basically says, hey, look, if you've got the spirit, you're going to agree with me because this is, this is coming from God. Verse 36, or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I'm saying are a command from the Lord. He's throwing down the apostolic trump card is what he's throwing down. It's like, if you think you really fill with the spirit, then you're going to agree with me because I'm God's apostle. Like, this is one of the very few times when God, when Paul lays down his credentials as, like, the Supreme Court of Judgment in the church. He's usually very humble. But here, it seems like, like, there was a lot of pride and a lot of arrogance in this, in this church. So what do we do with this gift? Well, let me say that I think in as much as God still gives the gift of prophecy, I think that he would still give this distinguishing of spirits. But I will also say it seems like the gift of prophecy has at least slowed down some over the millennia. And so I think that this gift has probably also um, become less frequent as well. I also don't think that this is just street smarts. I don't think this is just intuition. You know when you're talking to somebody about theology or God or whatever and you're like, hmm, they're weird. You know, and you, you're not really sure why, and you like, can't put your finger on it, that sort of thing. Like, I don't know what that is, but I don't think that's what he's getting at. I think there really is, we hear the content, and we are immediately able to put our finger. I say we. I don't think I have this gift. I don't think I've ever seen anybody exercise this gift. But I think it's the ability to instantly determine whether or not what somebody is saying is a prophetic word is from the Holy Spirit or from Satan. So you say, what does this look like? I honest to goodness have no idea, except that if someone were to come to you saying they have a revelation from God, it seems like it would be very concrete within you that it is either from the spirit or from a demonic source. And that's really all that I can say about that. Okay, a lot of time on that one gift. Let's go to the next one. Equally as fun, back in chapter 12, is speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues. Verse 10 in his list, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kind of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. Now, because tongues is such a big issue in modern Christian society, I want to spend some time on it. And like I said, what I want to do this morning is just give you a a, sort of a crash course, a biblical theology of of tongues. I'm not going to address all of the the different ways that that tongues is explained. We'll we'll move that into next week. Um, But let me give you a a definition of speaking in tongues. And this is as biblical as I think I I can gel it down to. It's the supernatural ability to speak in a language that you have never learned. The supernatural ability to speak in a language you have never learned, and you might not even understand what you're saying while you're speaking the language. All right, so just to make it clear, like if suddenly I could somehow speak Swahili instantaneously and, and w- without any learning, without any effort, but I'm speaking Swahili, but I don't even know what I'm saying in Swahili. Like I don't even know... 
the sentences that I'm putting out. But somehow I'm speaking and what's coming out is perfect Swahili or perfect German or perfect French or put in whatever um, language you want. Now, let me just say that the phrase speaking in tongues is very unusual because it implies something that is that is very odd. Uh, in Greek, the phrase is literally speaking in languages. The Greek word is glossa. Glossa, where we get glossary. And glossa can refer to basically two things. Number one, the muscle that's in your mouth. That's a tongue. Or it could be a set of nouns and verbs and adjectives and grammar that creates a language. And so I think it's actually more appropriate to call it the gift of languages, but everybody calls it the gift of speaking in tongues, and so that's what we're going to call it. We're not going to try and redefine it. Um, so I don't think it's a gift of anything to do with your physical tongue. It's the, the gift, the ability to speak a language you've never learned. We see it played out three times in the book of Acts, and it's described for us very clearly in the book of Acts, and it seems like they're all the same basic phenomenon. So turn over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Remember that this is shortly after Jesus has ascended into heaven. Uh, Jesus, right before that, said that they would receive power from on high, power from the Holy Spirit. And so this is the day of Pentecost. It's 50 days after Jesus was crucified. And this is the day when the Spirit comes upon all of the believers. They're all sitting up in a room. They're hiding. They're fearing persecution um, when this phenomenon happens. So let's take a look. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now I just want you to understand that word language at the end of verse six is the same word in Greek that he's been using all along. It's glossa. So, so it's just languages. Verse seven, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residences, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues, our own languages, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. So, so here's what happened. Uh, in Jerusalem, for the Feast of Pentecost, people would come from all over the Roman world, much like they did Passover, much like they did other feasts. And um, they would come... And celebrate. And they all came because Jerusalem is where you celebrated all Jewish feasts. That's really where you, you came. So you've got these guys from all over the world, Jewish people who are in town and they all speak different languages. 
all from, from different areas of the world. And this is important. These are all known languages. There are a lot of people say that speaking in tongues is just some angelic language. It's not, it's, it's, it's not discernible here on earth. Well, what we have from Luke is a list. You can count them. It's 17 different languages. All known. These are all actual languages that these people spoke. And they call them their native languages. This is what they would have grown up on. They probably also spoke Greek and maybe Aramaic and some other things too. But these are all actual languages. And they are all spoken by the followers of Jesus. And, and so all these people are in town. And the Holy Spirit comes upon these people, uh, upon the disciples. And they start speaking. And all these people from out of town are like, whoa, wait a minute. How do these backwoods boys from Galilee know all, all these other languages? So Galilee was like, was like Hickville in Israel. Okay. They, they, they knew Aramaic. That was the, the language that the Jews spoke. They probably also knew Greek because that's what the Romans spoke. And they probably knew some Hebrew because that's what they spoke in the synagogue. The, the scriptures were in Hebrew. But outside of that, they wouldn't have known all these other languages. There were, there were no great universities or anything like that where they would have learned these things. So it's amazing that these backwoods Galilean boys all of a sudden know supernaturally 17 different languages and can speak to all these different people all over the Roman world. There's really no way they would have known these other languages, but they're speaking them to the whole crowd. And it's not gobbledygook. It's not nonsense. They are genuinely speaking languages they've never learned. And the people from out of town are amazed. This isn't a trick. Look at verse 7. And they were amazed and astonished. This is, this is genuinely miraculous. And then look down in verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed. This is like jaw-dropping amazing what the Holy Spirit has done. You know what happened at the Tower of Babel when all the languages were confused? God instantaneously undid that in a moment through the power of the Holy Spirit. And they're all praising God. Now, here's the interesting thing. Not everyone is understanding what is being said. Not everyone is. Some people do it. The people from out of town understand it. But it seems like the local Jews in Jerusalem, the people who were against Jesus and the disciples, they don't understand. Because look what verses 12 through 15 say. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. They're drunk. Verse 14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea... In all who dwell in Jerusalem, you local guys who don't understand us, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. It's nine o'clock in the morning, people. They're not drunk. What's going on? And that's when he goes and he gives his whole sermon. And he says, the spirit has been poured out. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will prophesy. Everybody will know. And so tongues is actually sort of Again, prophecy of the big umbrella. Tongues is a form of that. And he says, that's what's going on. All these people from out of town, they're hearing it. The people in town from Jerusalem apparently are not hearing it. You say, well, what's that about? Well, see, when we get to chapter 14 of Corinthians, it's actually a form of judgment against the Jews who are against Jesus. Basically, God is saying, look, you guys aren't going to worship my Messiah. I'll go to the entire world. And that's exactly what's happening. 
And so this is actually a form of judgment against unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 14 says tongues are not for believers, actually. They're for unbelievers. It's sort of a sign of judgment. Believers happen to benefit from it by seeing this really cool supernatural thing by the Holy Spirit take place. But it's actually a sign of judgment on the unbelieving Jews because they didn't believe in Jesus. So it encourages the church. But what we see here is that these guys are speaking languages they've never learned. And it's genuine awe. It's genuine amazement. If if the gift of speaking in tongues happened in our church, you guys, we'd be like, that was the coolest church service I have ever been to. Like the Holy Spirit was there. Like it was going down. It was awesome. Why? Because it's demonstrable that the Holy Spirit would be among us. This was amazing. That's why he says it four different ways. Amazing, perplexed, all in awe. Every single one of them, except the people who couldn't hear. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And of course, 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus that day. Turn over to Acts 10. We see it here again. Now, this is important because back in Acts chapter 2, the audience was Jews. It was the Jews from out of town who heard the disciples speaking in other languages. In Acts 10, we're transitioning a little bit in the book of Acts. Remember, the gospel is going to go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost part of the world. Well, that's actually what we see with the gift of tongues. It starts in Jerusalem in chapter 2. In chapter 10, we see it outside of, of Judea, anyway. It's um, Well, it's actually on, on the coast, but it's spreading a little farther. And then we're going to look at Acts 19, where it goes even farther. So the gospel is spreading. Acts chapter 10 is, is the, the story of Peter and Cornelius. Remember, Cornelius was not a Jew. He was a Gentile centurion. He was in the military, over 100 people. He feared God. He sent for Peter. Remember, they both got visions. Cornelius sent for Peter. Peter came and preached the gospel. And then everybody believed. <clears throat> Look down at the end of chapter 10. Verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, he's in the middle of his sermon. He's still preaching. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. They had seen it with the Jews. They'd never seen it with the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues, in languages, and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. This is amazing. God is saving Gentiles. How do we know? How do we know this wasn't false profession of faith? Well, because they began speaking in languages. The same exact powerful manifestation of the Holy Spirit that we saw in chapter 2, we see again in chapter 10. Did they need to be taught how to speak in tongues? No. They just did. It just flowed from them. There's a whole movement. So, well, we just need to teach people how to speak in tongues. We don't see that in the Bible at all. It's just spontaneous. that they People just start speaking in a foreign language. They don't have to be taught anything. It just happens. And it's genuine. It's, it's a manifestation that the Holy Spirit is actually inside them, empowering them to overcome this language barrier. This is a huge deal in the church, by the way, because these are Gentiles who are speaking in tongues. Gentiles who have never been circumcised, who don't keep the law. 
And by faith alone, in Jesus alone, they're saved, filled with the Spirit, and they're doing the same thing. Chapter 11 is this huge church council where they're all trying to figure out, well, wait a minute, do we need to go back and circumcise the Gentiles? Because that's what we did in the Old Covenant. And they find out, no, in fact, we don't. Turn over to Acts 19. This is the third manifestation of tongues that we see. And it's probably going on all throughout the church. We just only have it recorded three different times. Um, It's certainly going on in Corinth. Um, even though it's not recorded in Corinth here in the book of Acts. So, so it seems like at least early on, this was, this was a really big deal. We have the same kind of thing going down in Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, except this is with Paul. Paul is now um, going on. He's in Ephesus. He's a long ways from home. And he comes across some people who have heard about John the Baptist, but they haven't heard about Jesus. They haven't heard the whole gospel. And so this is what, what happens. Acts 19 verses 1 through 7. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. So they knew John the Baptist. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So they hear about Jesus and they believe. They believe what Paul is saying. And Paul lays his hands on him. And we see this throughout the book of Acts. They're like, why why is it that when Paul lays his hand, that's when the Holy Spirit is given? It seems like during the apostolic time, God gave the apostles the ability to lay their hands on and either bestow gifts or even bestow the Holy Spirit shortly after conversion as a way to show that they had authority in the church. But now that's gone and salvation is synonymous with receiving the Holy Spirit. Um, but these three instances are the only description that we have of speaking in tongues, except for the corrective that Paul gives us in chapter 14. And we know that since Paul is speaking about speaking in tongues in Corinth, it happened in other places, but this seems to be the gift, is that it's just spontaneous ability to speak in languages that you don't know. And we'll see next week where there's a companion gift with that, just like there's a companion gift with prophecy, where people can interpret tongues. Just because you have this gift and maybe you could speak in fluent German instantaneously doesn't mean you know how to do it or know what you're saying. Maybe someone else who has the gift of interpretation does or someone else who speaks in German does. But but it's a, a supernatural gift that has a companion. Okay, we will come back next week and we'll flesh this out a little more. I hope this has been an encouragement. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for... Um, these gifts. We thank you uh, for the word. Um, We're removed from seeing a lot of this, um, Lord, but we desire that you would work, maybe even in ways that make us feel uncomfortable, Um, Lord, but we would desire to see uh, the obvious manifestation of your glory if it would be your will, and so we thank you for that. We thank you, Spirit, how you have equipped each and every one of us and how you have equipped our church according to your sovereign authority, and so we pray that we would not um, recoil at these gifts, Lord, but we would desire them because we desire to see your glory and that through us, the Lord Jesus would be magnified. And we pray in his name. Amen.